back in the days of Napoleon Bonaparte, so 1800 to 1815 or so, uh, there was a Lutheran composer who named Beethoven. Have you heard of him? One of the great Lutheran composers. And Beethoven innovated the, the idea of the symphony by calling back motifs and themes and things from the symphony, from earlier in the symphony, and bringing them in at the end of the symphony for a big resounding kind of finale that would have many things you've already heard would now kind of be woven back together again. Is, is Yana's hair long enough, Laura, that you are yet beginning to give her a ponytail? So when you weave all those things back together and kind of put a bow on the end, right? That's the end of Beethoven's symphonies. All of these things get woven back together. Then you put a bow on it. And I should, Annie, I, I, am, I, am I accurate in kind of what I'm saying here about Beethoven? You're the music professor and I'm just me. But, um, uh, and this is what Hosea does in these last three chapters. So Hosea all of a sudden brings in all the stuff we've been learning um, in, in these 14 chapters and brings them back in here at the very end so that we have all kinds of things we've heard a little bit about and now he will bring them in a little bit here, a little bit there, but an awful lot of uh, still now in the end these um, dramatic flips from law to gospel. Uh, very, very dramatic, very, very sudden um, and abrupt. So... All right, just getting started here. Chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. And what would be wrong with that? Well, you see where Israel is. Assyria is up there and Egypt is down there. And you've got this little country in between that really is... There's not much to it, and they're playing off these world powers against each other. Um, Assyria up there and Egypt down there, and they should not deal with both at the same time like this. Um, uh, they're just going to anger one or the other or both in the end, which is ultimately what happened. So, and, and God is saying, not only are you double dealing with the Assyrians and the Egyptians, but you've been double dealing with me. So that's the real problem behind all of this. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. And notice that God has flipped from saying Israel to the other name of the guy, which was Jacob. Okay? So uh, 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 in the womb, he, that is Jacob, grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. So what story are we talking about here? It's when Jacob and Esau were in the womb of their mother, right? They were both there, and uh, uh, as they were uh, going to emerge, um, this would be um, uh, uh, Isaac's wife was uh, Rebecca. Um, they, uh, Jacob, uh, this, this is a wild childbirth, isn't it? where he actually grabs his brother's heel on the way out like, you know, and, um, and uh, that's how he got his name, though, Yaakov. He grasps the heel, which also can mean he deceives. <clears throat> so God is going back to the history of Jacob the man 
to talk about Israel, the country. So Jacob was deceptive in the beginning, but God is going to say, what did he do? So let's learn from his history. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. So um, now we're moving ahead to Jacob wrestling with the angel. What happened there? What did the angel do? Yeah, you're pointing to the wrong thing. No, not his shoulder. It was his hip. Yeah, the hollow, the socket of his hip. So there's the Lord. Do we get to say the Lord cheated at wrestling? Should I? I well, well, I mean, whose rules were we talking about there? But anyway, uh, but Jacob, he certainly chastised him, and Jacob begged for favor. This is the point. Jacob begged for favor. So you, old country Israel, why aren't you doing this? Um, he found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name of renown, but you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. So Israel had been behaving badly. They had not turned and God is inviting them to return. Turn to your God. Okay, so this is a, this is a repeated calls to repentance is what we have coming on here. All right. Now, I want you to look at the picture. So, can you see this pretty well? This is a Saturday evening post cover. I don't, I don't think it's Rockwell. I, I don't know who this is. But do you see that the guy is touching the scale with his hand? And what's the woman doing? She's pushing up on the scale. So, they're, you know, they're both trying to fix things. So, the merchant uses dishonest scales. He loves to defraud. By the way, um, you younger guys, this is not an exaggeration. This used to happen. Um, where people, in fact, in not that distant um, of a past, I was at a grocery store and uh, I was buying, I believe, meat. And someone put their hand on the meat, the cashier. They said to keep it from rolling off of the scale. And when I asked her to take her hand off, it changed the price dramatically. So Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy with all my wealth. They will not find in me any iniquity or sin. What is this sin? What is the guy guilty of saying this? Yeah, he doesn't need a savior. That if I have enough wealth or if I have enough power... I can do anything I want to. That's a scary thing. And there are cases in probably recent history, more distant history, going back quite a ways, but if I have the power, I can get away with stuff. This, is, this was an attitude that led to, the, for example, the big Wall Street crash of 2008, the, the Ponzi scheme stuff going on. I'm reminded of that because just a little while ago, um, the, 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 the guy who was probably the most guilty there, a man named Bernie Madoff, his uh, lawyer appealed because I think now he has cancer or something. And the lawyer's trying to get him out of a prison. And I think the, 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 the judge said, okay. You know, not to he can get out, but oh, that's too bad. He's, you know, but he's staying where, he's, where he is. Um, but uh, yeah, the attitude that with all my wealth, 
they won't find anything wrong with me. That's just, that's corruption. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed feasts. The appointed feast, those are Bedouin tents at the bottom there. The appointed feast especially would be the Feast of Tabernacles where they lived like this to remember. The Jews did this for, in fact, still do. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles happens every September and they camp out. It's kind of a camping out party to remember the time in Egypt. Um, and God says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of your captivity, but I can send you back. You know, you could live in tents again for real and not just as a party in the fall. So this could really happen um, because of what you've been doing. I spoke to the prophets. Okay, this section now is going to go from verse 10 to 14. So it's a longer piece, not just this slide. But I spoke to the prophets and gave them many visions and told parables through them. We don't hear the word parable in the Old Testament very much. But we just talked about it Sunday in Bible class. Do you remember what the word parable means? There's kind of the old, I think it's from Charles Spurgeon, an old definition of parable that a lot of us learned once upon a time. Do you know which one I'm thinking of? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, not a bad definition, but we should remember that a parable is a comparison. That that's the key thing with a, par with a, a parable. And it's a comparison of the ordinary with the spiritual. So there might be some things in the Bible that you might think are parables, but they may not be because there's no comparison. It's just an account of something that really happened. Um, but here, uh, the prophets, uh, no, the word parable especially occurs with um, oh, Ezekiel and maybe some of the other prophets, uh, uh, maybe Zechariah, but, but here, gave them many visions and told parables through them. And then God asks, is Gilead wicked? Its people are worthless. So he asks a question they should be able to answer. And then he answers, yes, they are. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Well, yes, they do. And it's not a good kind of sacrifice. Their altars will be like piles of stones on a plowed field. How useful are stones on a plowed field? It's exactly the opposite of what you want there. And that's, so God is saying, I'm going to kick over their altars, really. Um, and that's what their altars are going to be. And, but now we begin to have this little list of things against the prophets. The, the prophets are God's mouthpieces, but the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, is, they, they're, they're ignoring them. Therefore, God's word is ignored. And God's messengers are abused and they are murdered by the people. Um, and then as God is drawing this out in the middle of all of this, he has this little verse, little history lesson. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife and to pay for her, he tended sheep. I didn't look as closely as I maybe should have. This might be just about the only piece of poetry in all of Hosea. Hosea is mostly prose. And I haven't formatted it like anything but prose, just straight lines and stuff. But this little thing maybe could be a little three-line poem, bumpity-bumpity. Um, 
So Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Who was he running away from? Esau. Um, and he gets his name changed. He goes up there and where is Aram? Aram is way up north. And incidentally, where is Assyria? Assyria is way up north. He's kind of comparing that, that whole thing. And then he says he went there to, to get a wife and to pay for her. He tended sheep. What kind of a wife was Jacob looking for? Was he looking for the prettiest wife or the wealthiest wife or the best housekeeping wife? What kind of a wife did Jacob look for? He wanted a believing wife. So he went to the only place he thought he could find one, which was back to grandpa's family. That's what he did. He went way back up to where Rebecca had come from, to Nahor. Um, and uh, 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 why am I uh, blacking out on the name? Um, uh, Rebecca's uh, brother. Uh, Laban. Laban, yeah. Um, yeah thank you. Um, and uh, so he goes back up there. And, and so he goes up there looking for her and he paid for her. Tended sheep. How many years did he, did he tend sheep to get Rachel? Seven at first. At first. <laughs> 14 years and one week is I think what we're looking for there. So yeah, a long, long time to get Rachel. Um, and, but he did it. He did it. And so you, Israel, the country, what should you be doing? He did that to get the correct believing wife. And what are you doing? You know, you, you're, you're not looking for what is right in my eyes. I think that's what this is doing in the middle of this. Otherwise, it's hard to explain where this is going, where this is coming from. But I believe that that's God using an example from their own history, from their own namesake, to remind them of what should be going on. Now back to the prophets. The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. Who was that prophet? Moses. By a prophet, he cared for him. Who followed Moses? Joshua. Incidentally, Moses is from what tribe? Do you know this? It is Levi. Yeah, Aaron, his brother, is the first of the Levites, and it's their tribe. But Joshua is not a Levite. Joshua's from Ephraim, from this tribe that God is scolding right now. So I'm kind of wondering if that's part of the, what's going on here with the Joshua, with a reference to the prophet he cared for. By the way, Joshua, when, when we're talking about the Old Testament books, Moses is one piece and if you're just going to do it in two halves, what's the second half called? Moses and the prophets. And the book of Joshua is the first of the prophets. So the, the four former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. They're written... You know, it, 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 that, that's the former prophets. The latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. So that's how those break out. And then everything else in the Old Testament is called the writings or the Psalms because the Psalms is the first of those and then everything else kind of trails off behind. But those are the three divisions of the Old Testament. Moses, 
the prophets, the four, and the three plus 12, and then all the rest. Like the first season of Gilligan's Island, the theme song ends with, and the rest, instead of the professor and Mary. Anyway, okay, all right. Thank you. Glad you got that reference. You, you're parenting correctly. You guys. Okay. But Ephraim has bitterly provoked him to anger. His Lord will leave upon him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. By the way, the other famous Ephraimite besides Joshua was Jeroboam I, that first king of the northern tribes who... Uh, set up the calf altars. So in this chapter, uh, what evidence does the Lord offer uh, that Israel is ripe for judgment? There have been four things in particular. Um, number one, they're behaving with uh, a double tongue or treaties with Assyria and Egypt at the same time. Dishonest merchants. So you're not treating each other well. You're double dealing with one another idolatry, you're double dealing with me, says the Lord. They, they don't trust like Jacob, their father, trusted. And then they don't listen to the prophets. They're double dealing with the prophets as well. In fact, they abuse and kill and murder the prophets. So that's where we're going here with chapter 12. But we have a chapter 13. And God immediately says, you know, when Ephraim spoke, men trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and he died. And I got to ask, who is God talking about here? Because I think we have three possibilities. Um, and I think I put them on your sheet, did I? Chapter 13, yeah, 13.1, um, this verse has three possible interpretations. First of all, this could be about Ephraim the tribe, Originally humble, but then haughty or arrogant and unrepentant. Could this be about Ephraim the tribe? Yeah, I think so. Um, could it be about not just Ephraim the tribe, but the whole northern kingdom, where Ephraim is just by metonymy, it's just the representative kingdom for the, for the whole thing. And uh, yeah, the whole northern kingdom could be like this. But I, I, I kind of want to ask, is it possible that this is about Ephraim, the original man? And it, does he somehow stand for the whole tribe or nation? And the problem with that is, well, what's in favor of that is words like he and he in verse 1. Do you see that? It's kind of talking about an individual guy. But the problem is we don't know that much about the man Ephraim, but we know a couple things. Who was Ephraim's father? Do you know, remember that? Joseph. Who was Ephraim's mother? Do you remember? Oh, it's a, well, read it. <laughs> Potiphera. Yeah, you could have just, you would have really impressed me again, Javis. But yeah, Potiphera, whose father, by the way, was a pagan priest in Egypt. He was the priest of An, or Heliopolis. They worshipped Ra, the sun god, in Egypt. And Joseph married that guy's daughter. In fact, Pharaoh gave him that daughter in, in, uh, uh, at a time when the pharaohs and the priests of, 
of Karnak got along, which didn't always happen, but it did then. And uh, so this, Ephraim's father believed one thing and mother maybe believed something else. You may have had a double religion in that marriage. And it says here, he became, well, he was exalted in Israel. Did that happen? Absolutely. In fact, Ephraim and Manasseh were taken up by, after Jacob got down to Egypt, he found Joseph, who he thought had been dead for years. Um, and now he finds out that his son is alive, and his son got married, and his son has children, and he brings up the two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. He has Joseph bring them to him and put them on his knees, and he says, these two sons that were born to you in Egypt before I came down, they will now be reckoned as my sons, just as Reuben and just as Simeon are my sons. That's in Genesis 48 or 49. I just read that this morning. Um, so uh, 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 Jacob essentially adopts them, brings them into the inheritance of the tribe, and those two boys, then from then on, Whenever you get a listing of the tribes of Israel and the, and, the, and the localities of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh are always tribes just like Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Benjamin, and so forth. What tribe, or what, what son doesn't get territory? Levi, but now we're down to 13. Because we've, we've got 12 sons, right? And now Jacob adds to Joseph. Yeah, they're dead. They, those two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, take their father's place, basically. And Joseph gets the double inheritance. That's what Jacob is doing when he adopts the two boys of Joseph. So he bypasses everybody else in the family. Joseph is in the, I think that Joseph is in the middle of the sons of Jacob. Well, we did Genesis a couple of years ago. We saw that Benjamin is the youngest, but there seem to be sons born to both Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah after Joseph. So some of those, uh, yeah, Isaacar and Gad and some of those are probably younger than Joseph. They're all kind of in a group though, in a mob. That they, they're, they're not very far away in age, any of those boys. Um, but Levi doesn't get an inheritance. Why? Well, originally it was because he was kicked out because he and Simeon uh, uh, killed the Shechemites in the, in the chapter I think of as someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Um, that's supposed to be a joke, but thank you, Mark, for at least smiling. Um, uh, 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 Simeon is reduced to living in the tents of Judah. So Simeon isn't going to get much of an inheritance at all. And he ends up basically, the Simeonites basically have Beersheba. That's kind of all they ever get. And, uh, and yes, uh, then the, but then when the Levites jump to Moses' aid during the Exodus, God gives the Levites the, 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 the duties of the priests. So that all changes. But God bypasses everybody else. But the Lord himself, who bypassed Reuben for his own reasons, because he sinned, Levi and Simeon sinned, God gives the right of the firstborn to the next son, Judah. And the Savior will come from Judah. But 
Israel, or Jacob himself, Israel himself, thinks he's going to give the double portion to Ephraim and Manasseh by dividing things like that. So that's how that happens. That's where those tribes come from. Okay. So he became, he was exalted rather in Israel. We're still in verse 1. But he became guilty of Baal worship and died. So Baal, often in the Bible, standing for any kind of idolatry, general idolatry, could this be that Ephraim the man, whose mother was a descendant of the priests of the sun god in Egypt, could he have fallen into some kind of idolatry himself? Maybe. Maybe. I don't want to say yes, certainly. And by the way, this would be the only passage that suggests it, except that in the list of the names of Jacob's grandsons and great-grandsons in Chronicles... Many of them have names that we would call patronymics. Or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, 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 not patronymics. That's a dad's name. Um, uh, theophorics. So names that have uh, God's name or title in the name. Like Elijah, Elisha. Have the, my name, Timothy. The the at the end of my name is God. Theos in Greek. So Timotheus. My name means the one who honors God. Well, Ephraim's grandson had a theophoric name, but not his son. His son didn't have that kind of... So maybe he had... That might be pretty scanty evidence. Please, O oh jury, don't base your verdict on that. But I'm just giving you all that there is. Okay, let's move on. Verse 2. By the way, our last chapter of 14, Israel short. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get to it. <clears throat> Verse 2. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifice and kiss the calf idols. That's terrible, terrible stuff. We don't have human sacrifice in scripture in Israel very much, but we do sometimes and only where? In the northern tribes where kings offer, for example, their sons. Um, yes. Oh, bad King Manasseh, you're right. Yeah. By the way, when you say King Manasseh, would you for the rest of your life always say bad King Manasseh? Thank you. No, you don't have to, you don't have to, but and he repented, by the way. His son Ammon was even worse, but I, for whatever reason, I've always said bad King Manasseh in my head, just to remember. Therefore, they will be like the morning mist. Oh, in this chapter, Hosea gives us little groups of four. Lots of little clumps of four. So they will be like the morning mist, the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. What do those four things have in common? Mist, dew, chaff, smoke. Yeah, and they, they disappear quickly. Like, now you see it, now you don't, right? You guys are, you guys are toast. Yeah. But I am the Lord your God. Oh, that but. When God has been pronouncing law, and then he says, but I, it's, that's, that's a good 
sign in Hosea. But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. Here the four things are the four things God has done for them. I cared for you in the desert, in the land of the burning heat. I, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were, when they were satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. So it kind of collapses here at the end. But what are the four things God did for them? Number one, brought you out of Egypt. And then you will acknowledge no God, that is no Savior, except me. I was your Savior. Um, and what did I do in verse 5? I cared for you. And in verse 6, I fed them. Yeah, so, um, and wow, how did God feed them? He fed them with, what are the three things? Manna. Water, especially, out of rocks. And then quail. Yeah, I threw birds at them. Yeah, by the millions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and they, but then when they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. So God blessed them, but they forgot. So now the four judgments, maybe five. I will come upon them like a lion. Come on, cut them on your fingers. Like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Kind of five? Yeah. Have any of you been in between a bear and her cubs? I have. We were... <laughs> when I was the age of these two young men... Um, our Lutheran pioneer group took a hiking trip into the Porcupine Mountains, which is in the UP of Michigan on the North Shore, up by Lake Superior. I've been there maybe three, four times in my life. This was my first trip up there. And uh, uh, a cousin of mine thought it would be a great idea to put summer sausage in his backpack for our first day's eating. And the bears began following us from everywhere in that woods. I think, I don't know how many thousand square miles of woods up there, but all the bears were after us. And at one point, we realized we saw bear cubs, and we were suddenly very concerned because we didn't see anything else, and they're, they're why, why am I looking at bear cubs? And then we heard the noise behind us. That was not a good moment in my life. I was almost as scared as scared can be at that moment. I've been almost shipwrecked on Lake Superior once and other things. And this was and on, on, on a train tracks, on a, on a bridge, a trestle, when the train was coming in the rain. I was scared then pretty solid too. I also went riding on a train when it started to go. And I was up on a boxcar and that scared me too. Um, they taught us at SEM, don't confess your sins to your people. So I better stop. What kind of bear was this? Black bear, North American black bear. The cousin who had brought along the summer sausage had also brought along an air horn and M80s, which are loud, explosive things. Boom! And uh, we used almost all of all that stuff up in the next three minutes of the story. And, uh, and, uh, but scaring the cubs and the mama 
got us just out of the way enough that we were able to escape and we left the summer sausage behind because we realized this was a bad idea. Um, but um, not good, not good. And here, uh, God had, had, had kind of done four, four, and then he kind of does five, and I'm wondering if it's a way of doing that four but five pattern that we saw earlier in that, that, that theme in Hosea four, and a way of completing it is to do five. Like you've got five judgments coming, all this lion. And, and were there lions and leopards and bears in, in Judah and Israel in those days? Absolutely there were. They were pretty fearsome. Um, the Syrian lion is unlike the African lion. It does, didn't evidently have the big mane as far as we know, but was maybe more like our North American mountain lion. Something like that. But they, there were Syrian elephants and other things that were, they were up here. In, in, in Canaan in those days. You are destroyed, O Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. So what are you thinking, you guys? Where is your king that he may save you? Who had given them a king in the first place? God, yeah. Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, give me a king and princes? So in my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. A couple chapters ago, we had talked about all of these kings in Hosea's lifetime that were in a period of, was it, was it 20 years? Five kings murdered? And, uh, and yeah, uh, so you asked for it, you got it. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. In the New Testament, God will say, I keep no record of your sins. That's a gospel promise. But for those who reject the gospel, for those who say no thank you to Christ, what happens to their sins? The record pops back up again. Now I have the record of all of your sins. That's what they carry with them to Judgment Day, is the complete record of every one of their sins. Can you imagine going into judgment with all of your sins on your head? At the beginning of Hamlet, the ghost of Hamlet's father, this is a play, not real, but the ghost of Hamlet's father talks about going into the judgment with all of his sins on his head. And he has just these words to describe his emotion. Horrible. Oh, horrible. That's all he can say about it. Um, in the play, it's because he didn't have time to repent before he was murdered. Now, is that good theology? No. Was Shakespeare a great theologian? No. But, anyway. Pains. Now, verse 13. Uh, verse 13 is not the end of this thought. We have to get to verse 14. But verse 13 is pretty terrifying. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he does not come to the opening of the womb. What happens to a baby who can't figure out how to get out of the womb? The baby dies, and in Hosea's time, what else happens? The mother dies too. Yeah. So Hosea depicts this uh, and it's interesting, in one verse, uh, because of the way he manipulates the thought here, that 
Hosea is describing Ephraim as both the mother and the child. So, you know, the, the, the pains come on you like you're the, the mother in labor, but you're also the child without wisdom who doesn't get it. So you're going to die, and if you're the mother, you're also going to die. So there's this double death. Death and death and death. But now what happens? That's a terrifying description of death. But don't forget verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? So, from this terrible death he was describing... What does God promise? I can bring you out of it. Right? God can ransom them from the grave. By the way, in, um, in your NIV or whatever translation you have open, it may tell you that this word for grave is actually the Hebrew word sheol. And uh, sheol is in Hebrew spelled exactly like the name Saul. Shaul, just different vowels. And the word means to ask. So on the one hand, you name a baby Shaul, Saul, um, which can also mean mighty one, but it kind of means asking one. And you might name your baby that if baby is constantly asking for milk. You know, you know the, the baby kind of cries and cries and cries. and uh, But... Why would they have that word for Sheol, for the grave? Because the grave asks and asks and asks and is never done asking. So yeah, where, O death, are your plagues? This is God mocking death and the grave in Hosea. So my question is, how close is that to 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57? Which I'll just read here. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Paul's point any different than Hosea's point? No. No. What kind of death was Hosea primarily talking about? Well, I would say death, death, right? Physical death. Yeah, plagues and whatnot. Death. Um, what kind of death is Paul especially talking about here? I mean, whose resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15 all about? Jesus and Mine, yeah, so and yours. So physical resurrection from the dead. If you understand 1 Corinthians 15, you understand one of the most important things of scripture. There are three key chapters in the Bible. Romans 3 that tells us about sin. 2 Corinthians 5 that tells us about grace. And 1 Corinthians 15 that tells us about the resurrection. And if you understand those three, you get the whole Bible. There, you've, you've, you've got it. There might be some details that you kind of scratch your head about, but you've got it if you get that. Sin, grace, resurrection.
Got it? Okay. So yeah, this is, this is exactly what Paul means. And sometimes the New Testament authors, when they quote the Old Testament, sometimes they translate it into Greek themselves. Sometimes they quote from the Greek translation called the Septuagint. And sometimes they translate the, um, the, 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 the concept, the idea, and maybe not what we would think of as being exactly word for word. Okay? But if mama says, supper's ready, wash your hands. And then dad says, get those hands clean. Your mother said to come to the table. Has the one quoted the other one exactly? No. But is the idea the same? Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, oh, but. Okay. We just had one of the most beautiful gospel passages in the entire Old Testament, promise of the resurrection. And now we go to this. I will have no compassion. Even though he thrives among his brothers, an east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. In Israel, an east wind means this is coming from across the Arabian desert right at you. This is not a good thing. It's hot. Um, Sirocco wind. Um, blowing in from the desert, his spring will be frail, or I'm sorry, his spring will fail and his well will dry up. His storehouse will be plundered of all its treasures. So everything you counted on, your store of food, your water, your good weather is done for. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Oh, oh. So God isn't hinting anymore. This is what the beginning of the exile will look like. And then we move to chapter 14. And then return. So again, flipping right back to, remember the chapter divisions are not original. So right after this dramatic proclamation of law, beautiful proclamation again of gospel. Law to gospel, law to gospel. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Um, ah, and by the way, the word return in Hebrew, shuv. Shuv, Israel, return, O Israel. Turn around, turn around. What does turn around remind you of? What New Testament doctrine? Repentance. Turn around. Yeah. I haven't, well, we haven't been doing those kinds of children's devotions for a long time, but I used to use the dump truck of repentance as our children's devotions. I got to get that out again. It's in my, it's in my office. It's, under, it's holding up Winnie the Pooh. That's where the dump truck of repentance lives. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, your sins have been your downfall. And listen to the beginning of verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Take words with you. And, you know, it's important what we say to God. What should we say to God if we're returning to him? Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. So the fruit of our lips is what comes after 
when we're praising God for his forgiveness. But the request for forgiveness, the prayer, the, the repentance is forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously. This is acknowledging their sinfulness. I, I, I will confess my sins to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. That's Psalm 32. I think that's Psalm 32. And the old liturgy. Yeah, both. Assyria cannot save us. This is Israel still admitting their sinfulness. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. The Assyrians climbed up on the backs of horses and fought from there. Terrifying to the Israelites because nobody else did that. Horses pulled things, but you didn't fight off of a horse. But the Assyrians, and later the Babylonians especially, perfected that. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. So it, this, is, this is true repentance for idolatry. Admitting what your idolatry was and saying, I'm done with all that. Um, and God's going to respond to this, by the way. Um, so he, he begins to say, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Remember I said we're, re, we're, we're, we're braiding together the past themes of the book. So in the beginning chapters, when it was Hosea and his wife, his wayward wife, God said, go and love her again, chase after her. And like I'm chasing after Ephraim and here, love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Um, in our church architecture, what does a lily remind us of? Easter. Easter, yeah. Do we have lilies in our sanctuary? In every stained glass window in our church are, are lilies. They are, they may not be what we think of as Easter lilies, but they are day lilies. And they're, they're winding around the perimeter of every single window. That's what those are in the, in the, in the, in the representational sim, symbolism of stained glass windows. Lilies are always a picture of the resurrection. And that's what those viney things are. They're not vines, they're lilies. And they remind us of the resurrection. Because what is Sunday. It's a little Easter, always. Okay. Um, yeah, he will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. God is giving back blessings to those who return to him. All the stuff that I took away, I'm giving back and more. You know, that you're, you're, you're going to be not just blessed, but you're going to be a blessing to others as well. That's where God is going with all of this. Men will dwell again in his shade. We only have three verses left here. Uh, he will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine. And his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. Um. I don't know about wine from Lebanon. Was Lebanon known for decent wine in the Bible? I, well, here it is. So I guess, I guess in Hosea's time, and maybe if you're up north, you don't get the good wine from Judah because there's an embargo, right? So maybe they were looking for the good Lebanese wine in, 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 at this time. Oh, Ephraim, 
What more have I to do with idols? I, I want to picture this some way. And what, what I picture is something that actually didn't happen in my family. But if you can imagine uh, of an angry father pulling, a, oh, I know, a, um, a, 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 a whiskey bottle from under his son's pillow, right? his high school son's pillow. You know, what's this, right? Um, and that's what God's been doing with Ephraim this whole time. But now, what does the angry father say? Oh, what more have I to do with this? And he just throws it away. You can hear the glass break, right? You've been worshiping idols, but if I forgive your sins, what have I got to do with your idols? You drop them, I will drop them. You've given this up. I'm done with it too. I will remember your sins no more. What more have I to do with idols, God says. I'm not going to bring this up anymore because you're done with them. That's what he wants from us. I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Um, they had pine trees in Israel. We have a lot of pine trees in America. And sometimes I think God winks at us across time and across the ocean and says, I haven't forgotten you guys. You know. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Is God right in ending the book with a little... I don't know, a little, little cautionary dig here with Ephraim, with the northern tribes. Do you think God is doing okay by not ending exactly with pure gospel, but with a little, be careful. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers when he sent them back to get their dad and come down to live in Egypt? Jeff. Be careful that you do not fall out. Don't quarrel along the way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't fall out with each other. Um, also, this last sentence, the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. That's kind of a one-verse summary of Psalm 1. Um, you know, it's just a little, this is what is right. This is how you should walk. And those who are not righteous, the rebellious, will fall, will stumble uh, along the way. So um, Hosea loves this people. This prophet loves his people. Um, and a good thing for a pastor to remember, um, I, I think that Luther said to his young men as they were leaving the seminary going to their calls, uh, when you arrive where they have called you, that should be for you like the Garden of Eden. You know, like I would, I, would, I would not want to be anywhere else than right there. I may come from Poinette, Wisconsin. And some of you know that I come from Poinette, Wisconsin. However, where am I pastor? Here at St. Paul's New Home. And this is my people. This is the church that I shepherd, that I'm privileged to shepherd. And this is where my heart is. Okay, my roots might go back there, but my heart is here with you guys. This is where I want to be.
I'd like to show you something. Unless you have a question about Hosea, I, I want to, before I, I, I begin going any further with this, I would like to assure everyone and remind everyone that the order of the books of the Bible is not inspired. Okay? The books of the Bible are inspired. But the order that we have them, like the minor prophets, that's not by divine inspiration. But it sometimes might help, and maybe this will help, and maybe it won't. I didn't give it to you on the sheet, I'm sorry. But the, 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 the minor prophets kind of fold out this way. So Hosea and Malachi both have references to divorce. Prophet Malachi has in the middle of it, I hate divorce, says the Lord your God, and Hosea began with the divorce stuff with Gomer, the wife. The next two books in, Joel the second and Zechariah second to last, both have a lot of stuff about plagues. Um, Joel is all about this locust plague that's coming, and Zechariah's final chapter is all about terrible plagues uh, that are coming in the, in the end. Amos and Haggai both talk about True worship, true piety. What does your life look like? Are you showing your faith? Um, in Amos, uh, there's a lot of wrongdoing. In Haggai, it's just one specific sin. You guys got mailed all of this beautiful cedar wood to rebuild the temple. By the way, you, I love your remodeled kitchens and bathrooms, but where's my temple? You know, so where'd you use all the wood for? That's Haggai. Um, going two more in, Obadiah, the day of the Lord comes, specific, specifically for Edom. And Zephaniah, the day, day of the Lord comes for all kinds, it's a long list of nations that Zephaniah preaches against, including the nation of Cush, the only prophet to speak against Cush. Why? Zephaniah's father was a Cushite. He is called Zephaniah, son of a Cushite, in the opening words. And he may have been a black um, a Jew, but his dad was a Cushite, and he's remembering maybe his own people with his call to repentance um, would be an appropriate thing to do. More about that some other time. Jonah and Habakkuk, both talking about faith and life and repentance. I, I'm always confused by commentators who don't know what to do with Jonah for a theme. I, maybe because they don't think that Jonah, they get bogged down in, I don't know, by the fish smell or whatever it is. But Habakkuk, the righteous, will live by faith also. And then the middle two books, Deliverance and Judgment, are both from God with Micah and Nahum. If this helps a little bit of minor prophet stuff, this is just something I put together a little while ago. Um, and if it helps, it helps. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But anyway. Starting next week, Pastor Scharf and maybe I will be tag-teaming, I think, um, although he's going to start, on some key teachings or doctrines of the Bible, beginning with the doctrine of God the Father. Um, so that'll go on for a little while, and then um, I'll come back um, when, when that series is done. It's not that long. Uh, six, eight, I don't know how long it'll go. Um, and then I'll come back with Chronicles, and we will visit the book of Chronicles together. God bless you all. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.